Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the podcast where I take a deep dive into the histories of abandoned and defunct theme parks and amusements. I'm your host, Ashley. This week, I'm going to tell you a little bit about a crazy, unique, transportation-themed park from down under. It's Wobby's World. I moved the topic of today's episode from my master list of every single theme park I can find out there to my short list of episodes I'm going to do in the very near future based solely on the name. Wobby's World is just this silly, wacky name, and it made me laugh. And I expected grand things from it. What I learned once I began my research is that the story of Wobby's World is perhaps a story of misconceptions, where expectations often do not meet up with the reality. As I welcome you to the new year and back from the holiday season, I invite you down under. It's time to go back down to Australia and see what's happening on that massive continent. Of course, what's happening in 2020 is a massive series of wildfires abnormally extreme due to the ongoing climate change crisis. For now, let's dial the clock backwards to the sometimes comparatively blissful 1980s. Broadly speaking, the social revolution of the 70s gave way to the economic revolution of the 1980s. The 1970s and 1980s saw the development of a number of major and minor theme parks throughout Australia. Today's topic is not the biggest of these theme parks and not the best of these theme parks. It's unclear if it was the smallest, but it's certainly remembered online with quite a bit of notoriety. Everything about this park was a lot grander in advertisement and memory than reality. Today, Wobby's World. But first, here is another podcast I'd like to share with you that I think you might like. Hi, I'm Rebecca Lieb. And I'm Jason Horton. And we're the hosts of Ghost Town, a comedy podcast about all places abandoned, tragic, mysterious, haunted, and true crimey. That's not a word. <laughs> we cover all kinds of locations like... The Los Feliz Murder House. And L.A. Murder, Frozen in Time. Action Park. The world's most dangerous amusement park. JonBenet Ramsey's House, Woodstock 99, the Cecil Hotel, and the Black House. Ooh, Satan. Mm. So pause the podcast you're currently listening to immediately and go subscribe to Ghost Town. And you can find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So that's Ghost Town. Check them out. And now, on with your regularly scheduled abandoned carousel. So as I've mentioned, Wobby's World is located, or was located, in Australia. It's in New South Wales, in a suburb of Melbourne. Wobby's World opened around 1978. The land in the Melbourne suburb called Vermont South had predominantly been orchards, specifically apple orchards, until the 1950s or 1960s. At this point, demand for housing in the Melbourne area was growing, and the orchards began to be subdivided into housing and other development stuff. The 1966 acquisition of a large block of orchards for local development is considered the start of the acquisition by the local government. And this local government is called the Nunawading Council. As a sidebar, of course, this begins the start of the delightfully fun names, especially for my American ears and probably yours, as my statistics tell me that most of you who listen to this podcast are American. For all that Australia speaks English, the odd place names and the slang um, definitely provide a little bit of a language barrier, but they make me really happy to listen to and come across, and I hope they make you happy too. So with the rise of the suburbs, of course, as I mentioned, there was a boom in the development of theme parks in Australia, and this ranged from small parks to large parks across the country, and Wobby's World was on the smaller side. From the beginning, the park advertised itself to local and not-so-local kids' television with well-edited footage promoting the thrills of the park. A near-universal remembrance of the park is its TV commercials, which reportedly played often or incessantly, depending on your perspective. Several of these commercials can still be found on YouTube and linked through the show notes, of course, as always. And you can find that show notes link at theabandoncarousel.com backslash 27. 
People who were children at the time remember the fear of missing out feeling of seeing the commercials for Wobby's World and then hearing mom and dad say, no, we're not going there. But ultimately, the park was very good at promotion, but the actual experience was often much more of a letdown. The first question you might wonder about when we talk about Wobby's World is what the heck is a Wobby? Is it a person? Is it a thing? Google, unfortunately, did not answer this question for me. The majority of people discussing the question out there are confused. It seems like no one knows. There's no real definition for the word. There is a book series out there called The Wobbies and the Caterpillar. Meant for children, it shows Wobbies as miniature blue fox-like creatures. Made up, of course. There's a 1946 short story in the Sydney Morning Herald that tells the tale of Wobby the Whale. There's a modern guy named Mike Wobshall, whose nickname is Wobby, a major talking head for the Minnesota Vikings who recently quit or was fired from that role. The American Agriculturalist Cyclopedia of Natural History from 1887 described red-throated diver birds as wobbies, and one single reference I could find used it colloquially to mean shark. But that's about it, and that's not a lot of results and basically no consistent response. Google also suggests wooby in the search, which, while an unlikely option for the meaning of the word, does itself have an interesting history. Did you know that a wooby is colloquially a child's lovey, and that this became the name of a popular item of military kit? Technically called the liner, comma, wet weather, comma, poncho, this item was originally produced in the 1960s during the Vietnam War. Troops fighting in the jungle needed a lightweight poncho to serve the dual purpose of both rain protection and warmth. The poncho and liner were originally crafted from leftover camouflaged parachute material all the way back from World War II, or so the story goes. The poncho was so beloved by the troops and so synonymous with comfort that it began to be called a wooby. Today, if you search for the term wooby, W-O-O-B-I-E, the dominant result is for this poncho. In a write-up on the U.S. Armed Forces-focused website Task and Purpose, they described the wooby thusly, quote, Simply put, it is the greatest thing to ever be issued by the U.S. military. End quote. Ultimately, of course, none of these possible meanings for the word appear to have anything to do with the theme park, leaving us an open mystery for now. Back to Wobby's world, then. Wobbies, spelled W-O-B-B-I-E-S, without any apostrophe, as far as I've seen in my research. There was a Mr. Wobby used as a mascot to promote the theme park in shopping malls, reportedly, but the internet holds no real details about what or whom he was. My suspicion is that he essentially looked like the saggy baggy elephant based on some abandoned photos of the park, but there's no confirmation of this. The park, Wobby's World, is said to have opened in or around 1980 on seven acres of land off Springvale Road in Nunawading. The real opening year might have actually been 1978, based on a line item in the official Survey of Post-War Built Heritage in Victoria, done by Heritage Victoria, the Governmental Heritage Department. 1978 was also the year the park began acquiring vehicles. And I found at least one internet commenter specifically noting a visit to the park in 1979. It was a place geared towards younger children, and particularly those interested in vehicles and moving attractions. The owner was a man by the name of Robin Laurie, and he owned the theme park, or quote-unquote children's playground, for most of the park's operation. He's remembered online as being a nice guy and good to work for, at least at the beginning. Wobby's World was memorable for its handmade and unique vintage rides. The aesthetic wasn't much. Quote, this place looks like it's from the 1930s, end quote, is a quote from a visitor who videotaped the park during its operating years. Overall, the theming was perhaps transportation, if it actually had a theme at all. Folks who were kids at the time remember the park for mailing you a free park voucher on your birthday. Quite the highlight to get a birthday card from a theme park as an under 10-year-old, if I'm being honest. I really like this policy. 
Perhaps the attraction with the longest history at Wabi's World was the big old Vickers Viscount airplane, sitting with a staircase waiting for guests to walk through it. It perhaps was not incredibly interesting for small children at a theme park, but it did have a deep history, which is why I've put it first in the order on the podcast. The Viscount, as a general model of plane, was one of the first turboprop airplanes. This plane was revolutionary for introducing a new type of engine, the turboprop engine. It was a jet engine with a propeller on the front and was incredibly fuel efficient compared to the engine it replaced, the piston-driven engine. Designed by a man called George Edwards, it was originally called Viceroy after the Viceroy of India, Lord Louis Mountbatten. After India's independence in 1947, the plane was renamed Viscount as it entered production. The first airplane entered service in 1950, a British plane, actually. A contemporaneous comment from 1953 described the plane as, quote, an excellent short-haul airplane and a definite crowd-pleaser, end quote. It was known for the smooth flight, lack of turbulence, and higher flying altitudes compared to planes at the time. In Australia, the Viscounts were widely used by Australian airline companies at the time as replacements for the piston-powered planes favored a generation earlier. Now, this specific Viscount was built in 1958. It was built for the Cuban state airline Cubana, registered as CUT622 and CUN622. Rumor consistently says that it served as the personal transport for Fidel Castro for some time, although there does not seem to be any evidence to back up this claim, at least available publicly. By 1961, after only a few years in service, it was actually seized for non-payment of debts and cannibalized for spare parts for other planes. The plane was intended to be sold by uh, Cubana to South Africa Airways, but the deal actually never went through. And so instead, the plane was eventually sold to Trans-Australian Airlines, TAA, with the tail number VHTVR in 1962. And there she was named John Murray. There's some discussion on some Facebook posts about the airline that the TVR was actually involved in an incident where a catering truck ran straight into the wing, damaging the plane. And the March 2015 issue of the TAA Museum newsletter describes the incident as a forklift running into the plane just after it had been completely rehauled to new condition. This was during the time when the Viscount was being retired, so spare parts were at a premium because they had to come all the way from England, which you can remember were in Australia. That's kind of far away. So in a pinch, the wing from the sister plane, the VHTVP, was removed and attached to TVR to allow the plane to continue to fly. And reportedly, this... this um, the service numbers can actually still be seen on the plane as it stands now at the museum, which we'll get there. After a few years flying in Australia, VHTVR, or the John Murray, was retired from service in April of 1970. She was destined for the scrap heap, essentially. She was destined for being destroyed as a fire training aid, but... In June of 1970, it's said that the personal intervention of TAA's chairman, Sir Frederick Scherger, saved the Murray from being destroyed. And instead, she was donated to the Australian Aircraft Restoration Group at Moorabbin. But space considerations meant that she had to take a substantial detour first. Reportedly, she languished in the Essendon Airport graveyard for several years after the airplane wing incident. But by October of 1978, she was delivered in a basic paint scheme with the name Wobby's Airlines to what the Vickers Viscount plane book described as a quote-unquote children's playground. Yes, our plane friend with that long history was now solely an exhibit for mildly interested children to tromp through. Well, tromp through isn't quite fair. Apparently, you got to pay an extra 50 cents in 1991 dollars to sit through a 25-minute video of a plane taking off and landing at a Melbourne airport. Well, that's something you could do at Wobby's World. There were other rides, of course. A commenter online states, quote, A place more schizophrenic between awesome and bleeping awful than Wobby's World I have never seen. End quote. 
One of the attractions generally considered most awesome were the real vehicles, like a real construction vehicle and a real tractor and a real Bren gun carrier from World War II that kids could drive. Collectively, they appear to have been called the Wobcats. Quote from an online commenter, I was 12 and I was driving a real tank. Talk about the best thing ever. The tank, the gun carrier, had no actual guns on it, of course, but the ride line was reportedly always long, indicative of its popularity. Children were able to drive an actual tank and get a token for their troubles. Imagine. Children were able to drive an actual tank and get a souvenir token for their troubles. Can you imagine? Or a real tractor or a real bulldozer. Can you imagine the chance to do that as a child or preteen? The latter, bulldozer and tractor, were rigged to a power grid, kind of like a supercharged bumper car in later years, and only those over the age limit could take their turn to drive the vehicles in jumpy, mechanized circles across muddy ground. But still, that's pretty thrilling. There were other rides, too. Nothing was a standard theme park ride. Everything had the aura of the custom, the vintage, the homemade. Take the entrance, for instance. By some bizarre reason, the entrance and offices were inside a boxy, bulky castle facade. The park's nominal theme could best be said to be transportation, so it's really unclear what theme this castle was intending to tie into. A six-person swan-shaped carousel, an extra 50 cents per ride in 1991, sat at the park by all accounts appearing to be homebrewed in most ways. The swans were simply two plywood swan-shaped cutouts that bracketed a basic seat. And in one of the videos of the park in operation that are available on YouTube, we get a good view of this ride with one single child kind of glumly going around and around, mom chimvying them to smile and wave, trying to induce some excitement into the scene. The carousel appeared to operate at about the speed of your average airline luggage carousel. In the March 1992 issue of The Fairbox, which is a monthly newsletter for transportation token collectors, there is a description of a quote-unquote beautiful ride token, which appears to have been for the Swan Merry-Go-Round labeled carousel. The accompanying comment in the newsletter said, quote, I've never heard of Nunawading before, so I guess it's some sort of theme park with rides. End quote. Very inspirational. Then there was some sort of amphibious ATV-type rides. These bright red cars called Wobby's Wheels. These were actually Sierra Trail Boss vehicles, six-wheeled ATV-type cars circa 1970. They went along a three-rail track through the woods. There's some debate online as to whether the cars were powered by a motor or by the track it ran on. In my opinion, a motor seems most likely based on the other Sierra Trail Boss vehicles that exist out there on the internet today, but this is only a guess. The ATV ride provided minor thrills like small puddles and a fake crocodile popping out at unsuspecting guests. These ATVs, and according to some commenters, all rides at Wobby's World, did not have any emergency stop zones. It was apparently solely up to the operator's discretion to decide when each car should be released from the station, and therefore how to limit any potential crashes. Clearly, this is not a situation that would fit with more modern standards of health and safety. In the later years, in 1994, Roughly $40,000 was spent to add a ride called Splash Down. This ride barely seems worthy of the classification of ride, though perhaps it depends on your perspective. It was literally just a small red boat with stick-on Wobby's World letters on the side. The boat was winched up maybe 7 to 10 feet on an incline and then splashed down in a small pool of water, coming to a stop almost as soon as the splash occurred. And I'll link to a video of this in the show notes. This appears to be the log ride that some people refer to when describing the park. General opinion on the internet is that this ride was underwhelming to say the least, with only a few former visitors exclaiming happily over this as their favorite ride. There was a vintage Dennis fire truck and also a fire truck ride which ran on a small central rail track. It seems that there was like a mannequin firefighter who... Uh, gave the thrill aspect to this particular ride by spraying the car as it went by at one point. And it seems that maybe if you rode this ride, you got a firefighter hat to wear. 
And it seems if maybe you rode this ride that you got a firefighter hat to wear. The online commentary does seem to find this ride memorable, despite how basic it seems in the description. Perhaps it was the plastic hat. Of course, there were other rides. One was a vintage hand pump car on a small circuit, reportedly requiring much effort to operate. And this was called the Push-Pull Railway, an additional 25 cents in 1991. There was a basic kids' playground setup with several slides, a sense-confusing spinning tunnel, a rope swing, and a swinging rope bridge, and a flying fox, which I learned in the course of this episode is the name for that thing that you see at playgrounds that's essentially sort of like a really heavy-duty zipline. There was a ball pit of bright, colorful plastic balls, reportedly over 18,000 of them, And there were large plastic trampolines with injury-awaiting exposed springs. There was a mini-golf course of no particular special theming, just basic blue surfaces surrounded by concrete gutters. But hey, mini-golf was an extra dollar per 18 holes. Apparently, the final hole, number 18, had a large rock wall or mountain facade of some sort where a hole-in-one would earn you a free game. And there were several trams, which an American audience would probably call trolleys, and not my actual initial interpretation from the videos online of trains. These were actual commuter trams formerly serving the Melbourne area. In a minor tangent, I found it very interesting in my research how trams are a huge form of public transportation in Melbourne, and that they have, by at least one source, the largest urban tram network in the world. Obviously, given my accent, you can probably tell that I'm an American living in the Midwest in this vast wasteland of terrible public transportation that is the majority of our nation. And I'm a little envious. Briefly, trams in Melbourne have operated since 1885. Electric trams operated irregularly beginning in 1889 and have been operated continuously for over a century, since 1906. Where other cities shuttered their tram networks, Melbourne's stayed in operation. Factors included things like wide streets and gridded geometry of the city, as well as union resistance and successful argument from the tram company chairman that it would have been prohibitively expensive to rip up the tracks in the city's streets. The tram network has expanded several times over the years, and today trams form much of Melbourne's character and occupy a large part of general tourism and travel advertising. The backbone of the Melbourne tram fleet between 1940 and 1969 was called the W2 class, this model of electric tram introduced back in 1927. More modern, wider trams began to replace the W2 series, with the final W2 being taken out of service in 1987. And what was really interesting to me as I was researching is that the government maintains excellent public records of each tram and where it went after it was sold from service, and this is all available online. So as Wabi's World geared up to open, or as Wabi's World was already open, given that we have some uncertainty about the opening day or opening date, um, it was in November of 1979 that they purchased their first W-2 tram, and this was number 302. The next spring, or, well what we would consider in America the next spring, but of course this is Australia, so the seasons are reversed, Um, in April of 1980, so that would be fall, they purchased another tram, number 283. And both of these trams were originally W models, um, manufactured in 1924, which had then been converted to the W2 sort of standard in the mid-1930s. And then five years later, after Wabi's World demonstrated some success, in November of 1985, Wabi's World bought two more W2 trams. They had number 579 and number 624, both manufactured between 1929 and 1930. All of these W2 trams were stationary, serving as exhibits, places to have picnics, lunches, birthday parties, stuff like that. There was another set of trams said to have been installed in the late 1980s, and these were a quote-unquote ride. I don't know that I would consider this a ride, but it was basically a very slow, moving, mechanized trip up and down a pathway. In Disneyland parlance, you'd probably consider this an A-ticket. 
These were painted a very cheerful green and yellow, matching the paint scheme livery of their larger cousins. The moderately interesting thing about these miniature trams is that they used a traverser, essentially an automated switch, something like what you would see on a turntable, used to move the tram from one set of tracks back to the other to allow a return trip up the hill. And these trams had names after local suburbs. They were called Vermont, Burwood, Nunawading, and Forest Hill. In addition to the trams, there were also actual pieces from trains, like my initial conception had thought. So there was a little display of rolling stock set up together, which originally had been displayed with the J550 locomotive at Mirbu North Station. According to one commenter, they were reportedly called the Crumpet Train when they were at Wabi's World, although I don't have any additional information on why this is. One was a BPL-59 painted pale blue. This was called a Bouncing Passenger Lounge, or a Passenger Carriage. And a ZL-539, or perhaps 536, my research is a little unclear, painted bright red. The latter was interesting to me because in sort of common parlance, when you're referring to Wabi's World online, you call this a Z-van. And I was like, what is that? I don't know what that is. But this is what's called a guards van or a brake car. And so this is kind of like a North American caboose, just with a slightly different look and, of course, a different name. Originally, so... From my research, this is what I understand about how trains worked originally, which we all know that I do not know much about trains. But here we are, I should have called this the abandoned train and not the abandoned carousel because I talk about trains way more than I talk about carousels. So originally, it seems like the only brakes on a train were in the locomotive and in the brake van. So they weren't continuously on every single car. So you could see the importance of having something called this guard's van because they would be there to brake when the train needed to brake. But continuous brakes where there were there are brakes on the wheels um, in every single car began to be implemented and then the guard's van fell out of use. So these were a cute little display at Wabi's World of rolling stock called the Crumpet Train. Of course, there were two other big rides at Wabi's World um, involving transportation that you might be saying, well, why haven't you talked about those yet? And so here we are, the helicopters. The first helicopter ride was the big one, the physically built big one. This was a big Bell 47J helicopter perched on a large piece of machinery in the middle of a field. Formerly registered as VHINE, This Bell 47J with serial number 1772 once operated for Airfast and Ansett ANA Airlines, both Australian airlines from the 1960s. The copter had a not particularly interesting history that I saw online, although it was said to be one of those used during the search when former Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt went missing in 1967. It was withdrawn from use in 1976, and from there it made its way to Wabi's world. It was positioned as a virtual reality simulator. For an additional $1 in $1991 per ride, kids were able to drive the copter and experience what it was like to fly one. In reality, of course, this is really truly the situation where the ride was nothing like the expectation. I suppose from a guy-builds-amusement-park-in-his-workshop sense, this ride was impressive, but compared to any actual theme park ride, it fell spectacularly short for all but the youngest riders. The copter rose up a few feet on its mechanical post and then kind of like spun in circles, but otherwise didn't do much at all in the way of a proper simulator. It didn't tilt, didn't really do anything. Remembrances online are all about how disappointing the helicopter ride was in reality, and it does at least seem that you could control the helicopter in some sense, because I did see guests mention that they tried to spin the copter in order to hit other guests in the queuing line, although, of course, it was set up with fences such that you couldn't do that. But others simply recall enjoying the ride as an excuse to get frisky behind the blacked-out front view screen. Nonetheless, regardless of actual reality, in commercials and pictures, the Big Bell helicopter did cut an impressive figure.
The other helicopter ride featured miniature whirlybird copters done up in primary colors, and it was somewhere in between a monorail and a roller coaster. From a layout and structural perspective, the ride does seem incredibly tame. However, given that this ride was essentially to the scale of, say, a beach ball shape perched on a string of yarn, the thrill came from the constant sensation that this ride was going to fall apart and kill you. Most visitors online recall this ride as actually quite scary. A former visitor online sums it up describing the ride as ancient and decrepit. The ride was said to shudder along just shedding flakes of rust. Some commenters even describe the I-beam rails as actually physically shuddering beneath the helicopter-shaped car's weight, or the entire apparatus, track and copter both, literally swaying in the wind. Quote, The whole contraption just gave off a million decibel about to collapse at any time. Warning. End quote. The gentle turns in U-bends combined with the mild slopes to give a terrifying coaster-like ride solely because of the wildly unsafe nature of it all. You would never, ever build a ride like this in modern times. Every time a small copter took a gentle turn on the rail, the small two-person capsule like shuddered and wobbled, seeming to barely hang on on the rail. And you can actually see online a um, ride-along video of the ride throughout most of the track. And like a 90-degree turn after a short downhill incline, this seems to have been the worst offender. And this is specifically called out as terrifying many of the people who rode it. Multiple reports and stories, these were all anecdotal, but there were many stories online that exist talking about the cars stopping, tilting, dangling, or doors simply not opening. So it's a fairly safe bet that this ride was not anywhere near modern standards of safe. One particularly vivid story online described a day nearly at the end of the park's life where a worker on a ladder shoved at a dangling whirlybird car with a broomstick attempting to right the car onto the track before two screaming children inside puked or passed out. It sounds so super safe. Of course, none of these rides were close to today's modern standards of safety and health. Wobby's world is long gone by the time I'm recording this in 2020, which I'm sure is unsurprising given what I've already told you about the park. One commenter online sums it up, describing their only memory of the park as the lingering sense of deep and utter disappointment. A number of factors were involved in the closure, not least of which were the typical reasons that you hear here on the abandoned carousel. Mismanagement, compliance with safety standards, and financial difficulties leading to audience decline. The park was said to be expensive for the time. $36 for a family of four admission in 1994 dollars is the often quoted number that you'll see when you read about the park online. This is about $60 in today's money. However, we could argue about the validity of that price quote. I did see a 1991 price list from a very reliable source, a legal proceeding, which has adult admission at $3 and kids ages four and up at $2, which is a very different pricing scheme. However, Given the minuscule scope of attractions at the park, the increasingly unsafe maintenance, and the very short amount of time that a person could actually find themselves entertained at the park, you could see how the cost was high. And additionally, as I noted as I described the park, most of the attractions actually had a separate cost. For instance, to walk through the Vickers Viscount, the 1982 price was an additional 50 cents, which is about $1.30 today. Only the playground equipment, fire truck, vintage cars, and trampolines were free, quote-unquote, or included in the admissions price. Very, very late in the game, a Red Baron monorail-type ride was added, featuring a single airplane on a very gentle slope. Most recollections of this ride are not particularly fond, and many describe it as lame, and it seems like it was mostly just there to try and save the park. Unsafe maintenance really seems to have played a large role in the decline of the audience for Wabi's World. Urban Dictionary actually has a review or definition for the park. Quote, 
Located in the state of Victoria, Australia, Wobby's World was a little kitty's theme park hangover from the 80s. Was run, until recently, with complete disregard for health and safety regulations. The rides were never oiled. Many were structurally unsound, such as the best ride there, which resembled a hill's hoist washing line. And the workers there seemed as if they either never slept, were hungover, or stoned. The last two options were definitely more likely. End quote. Of course, that's Urban Dictionary, so take that as you may. Many reviews and comments online from the later years of the park's history describe how poorly the park was looking. Rides and attractions broken down, covered in rust, ungreased, and just generally not working properly. The ride vehicles, in general, were said to all smell like sweat. Other comments talk about the overgrown landscaping with stagnant water in the ponds and blackberry bushes overgrowing the paths. This was while the park was still in operation, well before it was abandoned. My general sense is that most people in the area found the park iconic, although often in a negative, run-down sort of way. Of course, as I've already mentioned, one of the comments online, or several of the comments online, are all these anecdotes about the Whirlybird helicopters tipping over on a curve and dangling from a rail with passengers reportedly having to be rescued with the help of a stepladder. Another commenter online talks about giant cracks in the mini golf course and a hedge maze that was more holes than maze. And of course, the park had to have broken so many health and safety laws. Or, I mean, to be fair, perhaps if they didn't actively break them, they didn't really upgrade the park to comply with new regulations. The rides certainly were relics from a different age, a different age of more common sense, burning hot slides, exposed machinery, and the like. Hand in hand with health and safety laws, we have to talk about the ever-rising cost of insurance for a park such as this. That certainly couldn't have helped the bottom line, especially as maintenance and advertising costs rose and as attendance began dropping. The true final nail in the coffin, though, for Wobby's world was mismanagement. It's such a small word, but it describes some rather large ramifications and shenanigans. By the mid to late 90s, Wobby's world was having trouble staying in the black with the park. Reduced attendance, larger spending on maintenance and advertising, and even new rides like the Red Baron airplane monorail, similar to the Whirly Bird, but not appearing to replace it. In February of 1996, roughly $16,000 was spent to move the Vickers Viscount from Wobby's World back to Moo Robin and the Australian National Aviation Museum, which was originally known as the Moo Robin Air Museum. As we talked about earlier, the Viscount was simply on loan to Wobby's World. Apparently, there was some kind of drama involved with the move, of which I wish I knew more details, and if you have them, please feel free to share with me. From an account of the life of the plane, we have only this quote, quote, the aircraft was transported to the Moo Robin Air Museum, a saga in itself, end quote. Perhaps it was simply a difficult job to get the plane out, It does seem like an incredibly tight squeeze in the images that I've seen to get the airplane out past all the other rides and attractions at Wobby's World. I'll include a link to several photos of the plane on the move in the show notes. One comes with the caption, quote, a sigh of relief, end quote. It certainly does seem like a big production. Apparently, to move a plane, you have to remove the wings, the engine, and the nose, And then a large crane hoisted the plane body up onto a very large flatbed truck. From there, it presumably moved quite slowly to its new destination, some 20 kilometers south. The plane was moved, as I said, to the Moorabin Air Museum, and it still lives at the museum today, reportedly the only complete Viscount still remaining in Australia. But returning the Viscount to the museum in 1996 might have only hastened the public opinion issues with the park. After all, you were removing one of the major pieces of background scenery and an attraction from the park. By 1997, attendance was continuing to drop. Owners Robin and Barbara Laurie perhaps saw the writing on the wall, and they put the park up for sale. By December of 1997, the sale was finalized. Laurie was no longer the owner. Now it was owned by a company called Crystal Auburn, changing hands for the tidy sum of $550,000. Remember, 
as I've said before, Australia is in the Southern Hemisphere, so summer runs from approximately December through February. So the park was in operation at the time of the sale, and it was actually the height of the season. It seems that as the new owners operated the park in the high season and began sorting through the paperwork immediately following their purchase and acquisition, Crystal Auburn began to smell a rat in the walls. Something wasn't right. By March of 1998, three months after the purchase, they began seeking legal advice, and they reportedly asked Lori if he would take the park back. He declined. Crystal Auburn put Wobby's World up for sale at the end of that month, March 1998, at a sum of $650,000. From a public perspective, the park was increasingly rundown, untidy, and simply not up to par. Things were dirty, dusty, rusty, moldy, mildewy, and broken. Descriptions of the park from former workers around this time paint a picture of an empty park with not much to do. Workers were reportedly mostly bored high school and university students whiling away the days. There were said to be a bare handful of visitors on most days towards the end of the time period, with workers basically helping themselves to hot fries from the snack bar and passing the time with some hot book-reading action. Visitors weren't being drawn in anymore by the constantly running television commercials. The park had irregular operating hours. It was circling the drain in medical parlance. Ultimately, it was ingloriously shuttered the next year, in mid-1999, with fixtures being sold at public auction in June of 1999. Of course, none of this that I just told you really tells the story of what actually happened to Wabi's world. It wouldn't be until a series of three court cases in 2000, 2001, and 2004 that the details came to public light. The problem, you see, was that the 1997 sale of Wobby's World had been done under false pretenses. The remainder of this section is sourced from my interpretation of the three court cases, which I'll link in the show notes, as always, theabandoncarousel.com backslash 27. I'm not a lawyer, so I'll apologize in advance if I'm misinterpreting anything. Feel free to read the case for yourself. So my interpretation of what happened is that when the park was put up for sale, attendance figures and a profile in a business magazine were used to promote the sale of the park and were the basis by which this Crystal Auburn company chose to purchase the park. Only the problem it was, it turns out that the business numbers, things like profit, attendance, etc., were determined to be falsified and misleading. Even the park's income tax returns were incorrect for several years. Of course, this wasn't known at the time when Crystal Auburn purchased the park in December of 1997, though they quickly seemed to figure it out. Apparently, Wobby's World under Crystal Auburn operation reportedly had attendance numbers 60% lower than the previously provided attendance figures. And it wasn't until several months later in March of 1998 that they began to ask for legal advice and subsequently put Wobby's World back up for sale. In August of 1998, after having no offers coming in for the sale of the park, Crystal Auburn took the advice of their lawyers. They walked away from their contract. They walked away from Wobby's World. From here, it gets a little tricky, but Lori and his associated companies subsequently reoccupied and reopened the property throughout the summer of 1998 and 1999. Again, remember, Southern Hemisphere, what Americans would consider winter months. A major vandalism incident is reported to have occurred during this time, closing several of the rides. Ultimately, this incident might have been the final death toll for the park and its visitors. By January of 1999, Lori and his businesses had relisted Wobby's World for sale at a cost of $390,000. A buyer was found for the parkland itself when the land only was auctioned in June 1999. The ad copy wrote, quote, Falling within an area zoned reserved living and in a predominantly residential district, agents believe the property is ideally suited to residential subdivision but the site will be sold with conforming use rights, allowing an enterprising purchaser to continue to operate a theme park, end quote. The man in charge of selling the park said that since 1980, Wobby's World had been a, quote, source of joy for countless children. It would now appear that the site will be the source of much enjoyment for one successful residential developer, end quote. 
A buyer was indeed found, and the theme park land was actually split up. Wabi's world, as it had been, had to go. The park was shuttered. A public auction was set in July 1999, one month later, to sell the park's fixtures and rides. I'll include a listing of the auction contents on the show notes page for those interested, as I, and I think this is interesting because it does shed some light on what was actually at the park. It's said that Mr. Laurie himself personally bid on at least 24 different items from the park. By 2000, Crystal Auburn filed a legal proceeding against Robin Laurie and his associated companies, seeking damages under the claim that Laurie's companies had misrepresented Wabi's world when selling it. It took three cases and four more years before everything was settled. Ultimately, courts came to a decision. Apparently, Lori's companies had knowingly misled, deceived, and mismanaged the sale of Wabi's World by falsifying data that led to Crystal Auburn's purchase of the park. Ultimately, Crystal Auburn was awarded damages to the tune of almost $1 million. The land that was formerly Wabi's World, there on Springvale Road in Nunawading or Vermont South or Forest Hill, whichever Melbourne suburb you want to place it in, was split up after the theme park shuttered in 1999. Half of the land, as I told you, was sold to property developers, and it became basically your average basic housing tract. The other half of the property stayed nearly as it was, and this was the half with the quote-unquote castle. The castle, in fact, was actually probably the longest-lasting part of Wabi's world, as this half of the theme park actually became a garden center, a plant nursery. In fact, there's an indication that for a period of time, the castle was considered a heritage site based on the reporting from um, the Heritage Victorious uh, survey that I found. The name of the place was the Park Nursery and Pool Center. After a few weeks of research with this name kicking around in my head, I've decided that it's perhaps not quite as generic as it sounds. Do you think the park was a subtle Wabi's World reference, like theme park? Maybe. Maybe not. Anyways, the Garden Center stayed there for several years after Wabi's World was broken up. A few of the internet commenters say that the original owner and or his companies remained the owner of this garden center, although this wasn't clear or well-sourced in the slightest, and I couldn't find any details either for or against to help support this. A surprising amount of the physical infrastructure from Wabi's World actually did remain, though. Posts, the snack building, the mini-golf setup, and, of course, the castle. Google Earth does go back far enough to show us some of this detail, and it does show that pots and plants are simply organized in neat rows over much of where the parking lot used to be. For a time, it actually looked quite nice. And everything stayed there for years. I mean, I suppose if there's one thing that Australia has quite a bit of, it's land. But finally, a sign went up indicating a new purpose for the site. And in September of 2012, it was announced that the Forest Hill Police Station was going to be built there. The garden center closed, and the property began to be a target for graffiti artists. By October 2013, we can see a Google Street View that shows the shuttered, graffitied former castle, looking quite, quite sad. A few accounts actually exist online about explorations of the park at this stage, though most have been lost uh, to, you know, time. Like, most of these aren't online anymore, and I was able to find very few that were actually up on the Internet Archive. There are a few images available of the abandoned property since most of the interesting items, the rides, were sold fairly quickly. One, we, in one image, we can see a dingy, decrepit section of the mini golf course, just this blue astroturf uh, faded and obscured by debris. Another image shows folks looking at an original Wabi's World sign that had fallen in the grass, a little bit rusty, but white letters against a blue background still very, very clear. A sad, misshapen elephant I referred to at the very beginning of the podcast, this was possibly Mr. Wabi himself, perched on a ball, remained as a peeling mural on the wall of a building. Apparently, this was the former birthday hut where you had um, birthday parties. What little infrastructure had been left was in a sorry state. Rotting wooden bridges, rotting walkways, rusting metal, massive overgrowth of blackberries, muddy, mucky, gross pools of water. Between January 30th and February 27th of 2014, the castle building was demolished. The ceremonial first shovelful of dirt for the new property was dug February 12th, 
2014. The $12 million Forest Hill Police Station went up in its place, opening in March of 2015 all shiny and gleaming and modern, but the outbuildings and the back quarter of the park remained in their decaying glory until the entire site was finally demolished in July or August of 2016. That was the end of Wabi's World as anything resembling a physical site, but the park remains to this day as a concept in Australian cultural parlance. The 90s were the height of the late-night sketch comedy show era, and one of these sketch comedy shows in Australia was the short-lived but well-remembered show called The Late Show. Based out of Melbourne, this was a show appearing to be similar to uh, America's Mad TV, Canada's The Red Green Show, you know, Saturday Night Live, any of these comedy sketch shows. One of the recurring segments on The Late Show, though, was Piss Week World where fake commercials were shown promoting a theme park called Piss Week World. Video showed bored-looking children, who were known as the Piss Week Kids, experiencing disappointing rides at a terrible quote-unquote theme park. VoiceOver provided exuberant commentary about the terrible-looking rides and attractions. At Piss Week Western World, you can visit a real ranch, ride a bucking bronco. Travel on a real golf buggy, roll down a slope etc. The exciting-sounding descriptions were obvious send-ups. For instance, the voiceover of Ride a Bucking Bronco showed a child sitting calmly on the back of a golden retriever. Marine World was actually just someone's swimming pool, and then one of their Air World rides involved wearing ski goggles in front of a small fan. Ultimately, there were seven Piss Week World episode segments. Piss Week World. Piss Week World's brand new colonial village. Piss Week World Fun Park. Piss Week Western World. Piss Week Marine World. Piss Week Movie World. Piss Week Air World. All of these, of course, are available on YouTube for you to watch. And where will you find them? The show notes. It's generally accepted that this segment for the worst theme park ever was directly inspired by and parodying Wobby's World in particular. Depending on your point of view, it's a direct example of how influential, inspiring, or uninspiring and unexceptional Wobby's World actually was. Today, Piss Week World is perhaps even more well-known or commonly referenced than Wobby's World, evidenced by its regular use even to today on Twitter and other social media websites. Elsewhere in media, the park was also reportedly immortalized in an episode of the Australian TV show The Prisoner. If anyone has any leads on which episode, there are 692 of them, please let me know. And of course, Wobby's World does remain a talking point in discussions today, even if Piss Week World is more often used. People still reference Wobby's World. From online notes, we find at least two references to Wobby's World in even political debate. April 2016 comments by Premier Andrews to the opposition leader during legislative assembly. Quote, the leader of the opposition ought to get down to Wobby's world because he might have the numbers there. He should not waste his time on me. He might have the numbers down at Wobby's world. They might need a leader down there. He will be unopposed. End quote. And during the Parliament of Victoria Legislative Council, Mr. Lean is quoted as saying in April of 2013, quote, I am glad I have parliamentary privilege because Wobby's World was probably the worst amusement park you could ever imagine in your lifetime. Sorry, Mr. Wobby, but it was pretty ordinary. End quote. Of course, physical remnants of Wobby's World still remain, even with the park long shuttered and the castle demolished. The miniature trams remained on site for some time. One commenter online posted a picture of them said to be circa 2005, still in their former storage shed, then much overgrown and dirty. At least one of these mini-trams was sold at auction, and the remainder are said to have been gifted by the former owners to the same person who now owns the iconic Bell 47J helicopter on a farm near Frankston Dandy Road. The copter sits in the front yard next to a busy road, delightfully visible to all traffic passing by. According to an online comment, the local council fought the owners about it for several years after they'd purchased it at the Wobby's World auction, but finally settled. Reportedly, the copter is unlikely to fly again, missing the motor and gearbox. Certainly, it would be an expensive proposition to get it in flight-worthy condition again. 
Today, the copter's paint is peeling, and there have unfortunately been some vandalism incidents. However, it does remain safe from the scrap heap, and a reminder of the good times gone by for the regular traffic on the busy Frankston Dandy Road. Another copter, one of the Whirlybird monorail cars, is also visible at a house on the road to Healesville Animal Sanctuary. I'll include links to Google Map views for both of these things in the show notes. The W2-class trams are now all said to be in the hands of private collectors or restoration enthusiasts, but not much detail on this is known. The six-wheel Sierra Trail Boss Wobby's Wheels ATV cars could be found up for sale on Facebook Marketplace. Little bits of this decades-gone theme park still remain, and there's something infinitely charming and melancholic about that. What remains when we're gone into obsolescence, and what meaning is left for those looking back? I can't close out this episode without bringing the discussion back around to the wildfires raging in Australia right now. Yes, this is a podcast about defunct theme parks, but climate change affects us all. Half a billion animals have died in this fire. Millions of acres have been destroyed. The whole situation is bonkers. It's a result of climate change, which is real and causing massive problematic weather, amongst other things. You can combat this. You can make small changes like reducing your car and airplane usage, eating less or no meat, supporting policies that control and reduce large companies' emissions, and by talking about climate change to other people. Climate change is relevant to us all, even if you'd rather be talking about defunct theme parks. For many people, Wabi's World does remain a place of good memories, especially for those who visited at a very young age or with young kids. It was a place for birthday parties, for holiday parties, for school parties, stuff like that. And it was a place for the young at heart who wouldn't necessarily see the flaws that existed. For the older folks, it seemed as though Wabi's World was more mixed. Everyone seems to remember the constantly running TV commercials and the iconic sights of the park as they drove by on the road. But the general sentiment was of misconception, disappointment, and a fairly sad theme park experience. I think the ad was more enjoyable than the real thing. And so bad, it was good. And the worst theme park ever, which was what made it great. No matter what, Wobby's World was memorable. And it inspired the parody, Piss Week World, a concept which I might be incorporating into my own everyday vocabulary. And you know, for all that I said at the beginning that this park was about misconceptions, Wobby's World was actually a whole lot of fun to research. I think given the right frame of mind or the right age, it would have been a fun place to visit too. Even if it was really a bit of Piss Week World underneath. Look what they've got at Wobby's World. At Wobby's World there's heaps to do. Bring your friends and mum too. Visit the castle or fly in the sky. Wobby's World has lots of rides, helicopters, fire engines, trams and slides. Wobby's World, Springdale Road, Nutterwadi. It's great at Wobby's World. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I told you about Wobby's World down in Melbourne, Australia. As always, you can find all of the sites that I've referenced in the show notes page on my website. For this episode, it's theabandoncarousel.com backslash 27. I've also actually started a Patreon if you'd like to show your support of this podcast in a monetary fashion. It does take money to run this podcast, and it takes a lot of time because I'm not particularly interested in just putting up what Wikipedia says. It's often wrong. I'm interested in telling the true stories of what goes on behind these interesting pictures of defunct and abandoned theme parks. If you're interested in showing your support, you can find my Patreon page at patreon.com backslash theabandonedcarousel. For paying supporters, you'll get some interesting little kickbacks, just like public radio or PBS. This is your way to express how you feel about the things that you enjoy listening to. As usual, my theme music is from Aerobatics in Slow Motion by Technoaxe, which you can find on YouTube. The whole song is pretty great, which is why I chose it as my theme music. You can find credits for all of the rest of the music 
all of the images, all of the references that I've used in the podcast. You can find them at the show notes page, theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 27. I'll be back soon with another great episode, so I will see you then. Remember, as Lucy Maud Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.